Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. How many of you have ever been to a foreign country before? Some of you are like, yes, I went down to uh, the south. And uh, no, I'm not talking about the south. I'm talking about an actual foreign country that exceeded the borders of the United States of America. Uh, I've been to uh, two countries out of, uh, out of the states. Been to Mexico when I was in ninth grade uh, on a mission trip. And then a few years ago, right when, I, right when I first came here, my wife and I went over to Israel. And when you go to a different country, you very quickly, uh, especially in certain countries, you very quickly... Uh, realize that you are an outsider. <laughs> you uh, d- don't know the language. Uh, I didn't know the language in Israel. I didn't know the language in Mexico. Uh, you've, they've got different outlets over in Israel. I don't remember what they had in Mexico, but it's like, okay, uh, this, uh, my normal outlet, uh, I can't use that, which I was prepared for that, by the way. They told us you had to get something different. Um, but I, can't, I have to use a different outlet. Um, the uh, hotel bathrooms, the, uh, they don't have shower curtains. They just have a partial wall, and so half the water gets out on the uh, uh, floor. And, you know, interacting with the people is more or less a challenge. Uh, when I went to Mexico, I had just completed uh, ninth grade freshman Spanish. So I was like, yes, I can talk to them. And I was like... Not really. Um, You know, they speak way too fast for me. Um, I very much felt like a foreigner, a stranger, an outsider. And today we're going to talk about Israel's responsibility to the stranger, the foreigner, the outsider. And last time we looked at uh, Israel and the the nations as we've been talking about why Israel and why the church and uh, Israel's responsibility to the nations. Brief brief review, uh, we looked at God's Uh, how God's plan for mankind was universal from the beginning. And it it was his desire to reach all mankind from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And there was a universal outlook to Genesis from chapters 1 through 11 that we've looked at. Uh, And we were considering how does Israel's role differ from that of the church? Is there a difference? How was Israel to be a blessing and how was it accomplished? And really our theme there was that Um, Israel was to be a blessing to the nations by observing or living a distinct holy life. And we kind of saw the development of this through three key passages. One was Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant. You got three people groups mentioned there, Abraham, his descendants, and then they're going to be a blessing to all nations. And we looked at uh, briefly that there were instances in Abraham's life that suggest he wasn't uh, meant to evangelize the lost as the New Testament church is. Through that Abrahamic covenant, uh, we learn that he is going to be a blessing to all nations and he is to obey the Lord and teach his family to live justly and righteously. And then in Exodus 19, we have the Mosaic covenant which doesn't, still doesn't tell us exactly how they're going to be a blessing, but it does tell us that they are going to be a special holy nation to the Lord. And it's actually in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where we're uh, beginning tonight, that we finally see the actual instructions or indication as to how that's going to happen and how their role uh, among the nations is that through their obedience to God's laws, the other nations are going to see Israel's greatness as God blesses them for obeying. And then the nations would then realize that Israel is great because of Israel's great God. And Deuteronomy 4, we won't read these verses, but the primary verses we were looking at last time was verses 5 through 8. You can kind of peruse that. Um, 
they really, those verses really contradict the argument that Israel was to take an active evangelical role among the nations in reaching them for God. The emphasis was always on how Israel obeyed God's laws and then what the other nations around them saw. And this was going to be made especially possible by the key position that Israel was in geographically, as you see where they are kind of right there in the middle of uh, the Fertile Crescent, right there at that Levant, the the land bridge between uh, Africa and uh, Europe and Asia. They're kind of really in prime position for the nations to constantly be going in and out of through trade route purposes. They would see Israel. And so to summarize, as my professor that, uh, stated on this topic, he said that these passages establish a theological pattern. God's people following God's commandments in connection with God's promises results in universal benefit. Universal blessing is undoubtedly something that God initiates, but man can participate in it. The theological connection between Genesis 12, Exodus 19, and Deuteronomy 4 indicate, indicates that Israel could participate by observing a distinct life. So how did we see this play out? You know, when, how do we see them being a blessing? Did Israel achieve this? Well, we looked briefly at the end of our time last time a month ago at the Queen of Sheba's visit to Solomon. And she leaves breathless, exclaiming that Solomon's people are privileged to benefit from such wisdom and blessings. Uh, she blesses or praises God for giving wisdom to Solomon in the first place. She praises God for uh, uh, loving Israel enough to give them such a wise king as Solomon. So it seems at this point, Israel is at least in a sense achieving their goal, uh, God's goal for them, of being a blessing to the nations. Because the Queen of, she the queen of Sheba is, is, is essentially saying what is found in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, that Israel is great because God is great. Solomon is great because God, God is great. And Israel is blessed to have Yahweh as their God and, Israel, and Solomon as their king. And even the end of chapter 4 notes that as Solomon grows in wisdom and wealth, the nations are coming to hear of him and see this. Now before we look at some other examples of this mission for Israel being played out, I want us to, to look at Israel's interaction with foreigners and what that was supposed to be like. How were they supposed to treat the stranger? Kids, if you're following along and you have your little kid's corner sheet, that is your key word for tonight, stranger. So if you want a sticker, uh, you've got to get the word stranger there. And for those of you who might be older than that 7 to 12 range, you've got to get one of the Hebrew words that we're going to talk about here in a minute, all right? There's four of them, but they'll be on the, the screen for a long time. So, uh, Miss Chrissy, don't, don't go easy on them, okay? All right, so whenever I was growing up, when I was about five years old in Middleton, Tennessee, population of like 550 people, everybody knew everybody, I was very outgoing. I know that's very hard to believe. Um, but I, I wasn't afraid of interacting with strangers. And my dad went into the hardware store and in a town of 500 when everybody knows everybody. You know, he just left us in the car, uh, you know, small uh, Shelly's hardware store. And I guess I had crawled to the front seat or something and our, my dad's, you know, old crank windows were down. And uh, a guy pulled up next to us or was going back in. I don't know if he was getting in or out of his car. And I said, hi, how are you? And Christy said to me, Jeremy, don't talk to him. He's a stranger. He might pull you out the window. And I was like, oh. And I was like, oh, scared. And I said, mister, are you a stranger? 
So, and then Mr. Shelley, the owner of the hardware store that I knew, I said, I, I pointed to him as uh, he was walking by. I said, that's Mr. Shelley. He won't pull me out the window. You know, I had no fear at all of strangers, uh, probably to my detriment. Now, those of you who grew up in the 90s and maybe 80s, what was the big warning phrase for, that you were taught or you tried to teach your kids about strangers? Stranger danger. That is exactly right. Stranger danger. Well, we're going to look at four key words for foreigners, strangers, used in the Old Testament. And I've got a kind of a chart here that if you're looking for an outline to make notes tonight, uh, it's not going to be so much of an outline. This is going to be, uh, we're living up to our learn service reputation tonight. You're going to have more of a chart here. So I encourage you as um, we go through to get kind of a four-by-four chart here on your notes here. So we've got one word, zur, and then nekar, or nekari, and then tosav, and then ger. Now, all of these words have, at some level, the meaning of foreigner or stranger, but each one is going to take a little bit different nuance. That first one is used about 70 times in the Old Testament, and it can mean strange, stranger, alien, foreigner, outsider or estranged. Uh, Oftentimes it refers to a strange woman, a prostitute or a harlot. Um, It can refer to a state of rebellion, but sometimes it's linked with the Hebrew word for enemy. Um, The New Bible Dictionary says that this refers to one who does not belong to the house or community that he is in. Uh, Other places that it is used is uh, Leviticus 10.1. It describes the strange fire that Aaron's two older sons offered to the Lord that wasn't authorized, and he consumed them for that. Number 17.5, this word is used to describe a stranger as in one who is not a descendant of Aaron and therefore can't offer incense in the tabernacle. Numbers 151, the stranger there refers to someone who is not a Levite and can't touch the things of the tabernacle and help set it up and take it down. You've got Proverbs 2.16 referring to the strange woman, again, the harlot. Uh, Isaiah 1.7, the word stranger, this word is used to refer to a foreign land or foreign people with an implied enemy being the context. Uh, Isaiah 4.1.4, uh, uh, God talks about how his people have been so much in sin that they are estranged or turned aside from what they should be doing or they have gone away, backward. Um, Psalm 58.3 uses it in the same way when, it ta- way when it talks about the wicked have been estranged from the womb. Deuteronomy 32.16 talks about foreign or strange gods. So kind of in summary of what this word for stranger meant, again, beyond just general foreigner or stranger, you've got this idea that it is one that is an enemy or something that is unauthorized. It's on the whole has negative connotations. Have you kind of gotten that? Uh, through this. And so Israel's disposition towards them was to be something that they should avoid. There's something that they shouldn't interact with or be associated with. And so I'm going to put above that our little symbol, stranger danger, right? Uh, the next word there on the screen, the nekar, the nekari, you, those two forms that mean basically the same thing appear 81 times. And they mean alien, foreign, or a foreign land, no kinship ties to the present land that you're in, pagan, foreign gods, idols, altars, again, uh, foreign strange women, 
um, or that which is unfamiliar. Uh, my, my wife often likes to try me to get to try food that is unfamiliar. And I'm like, no, it is strange. It is foreign. I shall not partake of it. Um, this word is often linked with enemies or evil or harlotry. But it can be used generally for, to refer to a sojourner. Proverbs 2.6 that I referred to earlier, I'll show you that verse now. It uh, uses both of these first two words in talking about the strange woman, that first word, or the stranger, that second word, which flattereth with her word. In other words, stay away from this woman. This is not a good woman. Uh, Solomon's wives are referred to as strange foreign women. That's the second word that we're talking about, 1 Kings 11.1. I like Nehemiah 13. 26, uh, one uh, translation says about Solomon's wife, they are outlandish women. Um, Ezra 10, 2 talks about how they were, for, uh, they were forbidden to marry Nekari women, foreign women. Taking, they were taking strange wives, which they shouldn't have been. Isaiah 2, 6 and Zephaniah 1, 8, Isaiah, uh, um, Israel is forsaken and punished by God. Why? Because they were allying with foreign, strange women people. And economically, someone who is described with this word as a, as a neckery, a stranger, they could be charged interest, but Israelites were not to be charged interest. Someone described by this term couldn't be king, uh, and they were often oppressive with the Israelites. They were often associated as an enemy like that first Hebrew word. New Bible Dictionary often says this, that it describes one of another race, but it also acquires religious connotation because of the association of other nations with idolatry. So kind of in summary on this, one, on this term, it kind of takes a slightly different nuance, although very similar to this first term. There's morally or religious uh, harm that, it, that is represented by this person. So because of the moral and religious harm that this person can do to the Israelites, they are to avoid. They are not to mix with these people. That's why they're not supposed to, to marry foreign women. So I'm going to move our little stranger danger symbol down here so we get, have it for both of these people. That second word, tosab, it's a general word for stranger or sojourner, a foreigner, or a temporary resident, as one source said, an alien living in an area that is not one's normal country as a class of people with less social, social rights. When I lived in Pennsylvania as an intern, I was there for, uh, nine months right after we got married. Uh, I was only going to be there very temporarily, for just for nine months. And it, you know, I felt that. It felt like a fish out of water in a lot of ways because you know, I knew I wasn't going to be there that long there that long. The people, they were great and they loved us. Uh, they knew that we weren't going to be there that long. Um, so, you know, when you know that you're not going to be somewhere very long, it's just hard to really sink your roots uh, down uh, deep. Um, you know, even when I went off to Bob Jones, we got some people who are going to go off to college, go off to Bob Jones. You're more than likely, unless you decide to stay and become a lifer, um, you're going to be there for roughly four years. And then you'll maybe come back to us, hopefully. Uh, maybe, but the Lord might have you move on elsewhere. But the temporary nature is kind of what's in mind here for this person. Um, and they are more temporary and more dependent than the, uh, the next word, which we're going to go ahead and start talking about, the ger. The ger, again, is what that meaning is sojourner, stranger. 
but a, with more nuance and a deeper meaning. And we're going to spend a little bit more time here on this one. The a theological lex, a lexicon of the Old Testament says that the, the ger is distinguished from the foreigner in general, those first two words on the screen, the zur and the nekar, and that he is the stranger who has settled and established himself or herself for a particular period in the land and to whom special status is actually granted. It goes on to say that the legal texts suggest an increasingly pronounced tendency to assimilate the ger to the Israelites, especially in religious context. So this is someone who's going to is more more of a long-term resident sojourner and someone who's assimilating into society than temporary. And this is enhanced by the fact that 17 times this word ger used for stranger is used in conjunction with a Hebrew word that means a naturally born citizen, which is Ezra. You've got that in, in several places. And in those cases, the verse is usually talking about how God's commands apply to both the naturally born citizen and to the stranger, the sojourner, this person, this last word. Leviticus 24, 22. Ye shall have one manner of law as well for the stranger and as of one of your own country, for I am the Lord your God. God is saying, look, the laws that I'm giving you, they apply to both you, naturally born citizens, and to these strangers. It's not just any old stranger. Remember, we've got four words for stranger. So don't broadly categorize them all in one. There actually is a distinction. We see in Joshua 8, 33, that both are present for the renewing of the covenant after the conquest of Ai, In Deuteronomy 29, 9-13, this includes the ger when God is talking about entering a covenant into a covenant with the people. He talks to your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, officers, all men, children, wives, and the stranger or the sojourner, the alien. In Deuteronomy 31, 12, Moses is some of his final admonitions and commands to the Israelites. He says, gather the people together, men and women and children and thy stranger that is within thy gates, that they may hear and may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law. So basically, there are some expectations here of the Gair that, that kind of makes him seem like he is more or less on par with the Israelite. Why is that? Well, we'll we'll show that in a second. But there are commands about he must keep the Sabbath. Uh, Deuteronomy 5.14, he must observe the Day of Atonement. He can sacrifice, but he must follow the laws of burnt offerings. And uh, he can also uh, partake uh, and and join the religious festivals in Leviticus 17. He must also follow the laws of cleanliness and purity. He He must not eat blood. Um, And he can partake of the Passover if, and this is kind of the key distinction between him and the other three, even that third word that uh, hasn't really been negative, the tosab, he may partake of the Passover if he is circumcised. Exodus 12, 48, and when a stranger shall sojourn with thee, and while will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as one that is born in the land. See, there's that equivalence. He's like, look, he's gonna, if he goes through the rite of circumcision, treat him just like you would treat anybody else. For no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. So that, that 
circumcision, the act of circumcision is kind of like, and loosely, uh, not identical, but it's kind of like when someone who's not a natural-born citizen gets citizenship. They have to go through these various tests, and they have to pass a test, and they you know, have to have been here so many years and all that thing. And then they, are, they have all the rights and privileges of a citizen. They are to, you know, they're expected to obey the law and you know, you know, have all the consequences, therefore. Um, and kind of the same way, because he has done this, that's why there's all these other expectations about keeping the Sabbath and Day of Atonement, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the, 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 the theological lexicon I referred to earlier goes on to say that the Gare is one who, through the act of initiation, circumcision, has identified himself with Ju- Judaism. And so through that and observing the law of Moses, this is a key point of difference between those other three terms. He is demonstrating that he has a heart for Yahweh. He actually loves the Lord and wants to be part of of Israel in the complete sense. And so hence, the Geir receives special treatment and protection from God alongside the Levite and the widows and the poor, Deuteronomy 14, 29. And what do we see uh, later on in the prophets? They rebuke Israel. Why? Because they haven't been taking care of the Levite, who don't have land. They just have, they have their uh, specified cities and the small lands around them. But they've been abandoning the Levite. They've been abandoning the widows, the fatherless, and the stranger. As in, the one who has essentially made Yahweh his God, but Israel oftentimes didn't care about them. So the Israelites were not to oppress these sojourners, but to care for and even love them. They were not to be overworked, Exodus 23.12. Israel was supposed to leave the corners of their field unharvested, and any crops dropped as they were harvesting should be left for the gare. And that's going to come up in a minute. Your mind may be going to a passage that we're going to go to in a minute. Uh, The gare also deserved a fair hearing in court. He and the Tosab... Uh, were to benefit from the cities of refuge in case of manslaughter. And then finally, Psalm 146, verse 9, we see that the Lord protects the gare. He protects the sojourner and will judge and oppress the gare. Malachi 3, 5. I want to pause here and say, uh, on on one note, if you're like, really sitting there and thinking, wow, how does he know about all these verses? One, I have have various books that I can go to, but I have an app on here that is really helpful. I just want to make a plug for that. Blue Letter Bible, you can go to a verse, look up a Hebrew word that's in that verse, and then it'll show you all the verses that it's used. So I can, very quickly, I can just kind of see a little bit of a context. So if you're looking for something to enhance your study of God's word, I would highly encourage Blue Letter Bible. So that was was free. Uh, Continuing on. God's basis for these commands, besides the fact that the Gare seems to have a heart desire for the Lord and, and should be treated thus equally uh, to the, like the Israelites, his basis for these commands to treat the sojourner is founded in the fact that Israel, as God reminds them often, was a sojourner in Egypt. So to summarize these two words here, both the Tosab and the Gare were non-Israelites dwelling in Israel, both benefited from the general uh, legal and economic laws. There are some distinctions. The Tosab could be bought as a slave, but the law doesn't say anything about that for the Gare. Uh, where the two are slightly different is 
moral and religious laws. Only the ger was allowed to participate in the Passover, but the tosab was explicitly, it was explicitly stated that he may not do so. Uh, the ger was required to follow the law of Moses. But Israel's response was to largely, as a whole, he was supposed to still care for the tosab. A lot of, there was a lot of parallel between the two. They're not identical, though. And for the ger, he was to outright treat them as one of your own. Even though they are not blood uh, brothers, they are to treat them just like they would treat like any other Israelites. And why is this? It's because the Ger was one who not only posed no threat to Israel, Israel, religiously, morally, or economically, like those first two words that we have, but he was one who has assimilated into Judaism and had made Yahweh his God. So in summary of these words, on the left... Let's see from your perspective. Okay, on the left over here. So on the left, we've got two words that are really negative words for foreigners and strangers that uh, designate someone that Israel should not associate with. So we're going to put them in red. Now, this is not because Israel is heartless, not because Israel is racist or bigoted, it is, but it's because of the disposition of those people that they had towards Israel and their God. It's because of the moral and religious harm that they would bring upon Israel. So this is a big part of why they were not to make covenants with the Canaanites as they went in to take the land of Canaan, the promised land. Because God knew that if they didn't fully conquer and fully uh, destroy the Canaanites, they would be prone to idolatry, which is exactly what we, ha- what we see happen, in, especially in the book of Judges. Then in the third section, that third word, we have someone that was a non-Israelite who dwelt among them, and Israel was to look out for such a person, but that person didn't have all the rights and privileges as a normal Israelite. So we're going to say a good, uh, overly good view of them. And then the last word indicates someone who is more than someone who had just moved to Israel temporarily, but someone who had basically converted to the worship of the one true God. And though not ethically, ethnically, spiritually, they were, if we could say, an Israelite. And Paul writes in Galatians 3, uh, 6 through 9, that those who share in Abram's faith are really children of Abraham. So therefore, the laws and benefits of God's covenant applied to them, and Israel was to treat them fairly and equally. Now, you think about Early in Israel's history, this distinction between these types of foreigners, these different strangers, it was necessary to make this distinction so the Israelites would know how they were to treat non-Israelites. And it was necessary for two reasons. They needed to know how they were to treat the uh, Canaanites and those who would be enemies, and that was to avoid them. And in in the Canaanites' uh, situation, they were actually to destroy them. But they also needed to know how to interact with them, those that were among them and not actually blood Israelites. Exodus 12, 38 actually says that there was a mixed multitude, a mixed company that came out of Egypt. In other words, it wasn't just the Israelites that came out of at the Exodus. There were other non-Israelites who went with them, perhaps some uh, Egyptians, uh, some some people of other nationalities who had come to sojourn in Egypt and then decided to leave with them. And so... This is why you even have commands right there at the Passover initially that, you know, foreigners, they can't partake of the Passover, but uh, the Gare, they can if they will be circumcised. 
And we even see this mixed multitude coming up later uh, during their wilderness wanderings when a mixed company or a mixed multitude came to Aaron and they were complaining about this, that, and the other, uh, just like all the other things that the Israelites um, complained about. And so I think that this uh, possibility of these people being included and treated uh, uh, justly and fairly, the ger, this fourth word here, this anticipates that people will hear of Israel and her great God and be drawn to them and then desire to live among them because they, they, they would see that, wow, the, the prosperity, the greatness of Israel, it's because of their great God. I want to be a part of that, but I'm a foreigner. And so God says, Israel, you treat them fairly. You treat them well. You take care of them. Treat them as one of your own because they desire to worship me. And through that Passover, Israel was shown how they were to make a distinction between those who merely joined Israel for personal benefit, maybe like the Tosab or leftover Canaanites who are still in the land, versus those who went a step further and joined Israel for spiritual benefit, those who had converted and been circumcised. Now, this difference between these four words, particularly those last two verses, the first two, explain why if you've ever thought about this, and I've, I've wrestled with this a little bit too, is in Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi, they all react very strongly to the fact that the returned exiles from Babylon uh, had begun to intermarry with foreign wives, foreign women. And the issue is not so much that they were racial elitists, people, uh, they were just, it was just such a horrible thing to marry a foreigner. There's actually allowance in the Old Testament law about if you find somebody that uh, you desire to marry who's, you know, that you've taken through uh, warfare and whatnot, there's procedures for that. It wasn't that 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 was the key issue. The key issue was that these were in that that second war word there, the Nekar, people who were morally or religiously harmful to them. These were women, these were wives that were just like Solomon's wives that Nehemiah talks about at the end of his book. He said, this is exactly what what was the problem for Solomon. This is what led to his idolatry. This is what got our our nation judged and sent off into captivity in the first place. And so they're all like, like, you know, we would see in our 21st century mindset, we would say, man, they're all freaking out. I mean, calm down just a little bit. And they're like, look, we could be judged and sent back into captivity. So they take this very seriously because they don't want to repeat the same mistakes and incur God's judgment on them again. They were justly afraid of that happening again. So now with a proper understanding of these terms, let's look at uh, uh, some examples of how this played out as we thought and considered Israel's position towards the foreigner. Let's go to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. You probably know where where I'm going with this one, but here in Joshua chapter 2 we have a Canaanite who was supposed to be destroyed with everyone else, but she was spared. And why was that? Because she helps the two spies that Joshua sent in to, to uh, survey the land around Jericho. And this is, of course, Rahab. But she says something that's very interesting and highlights more than just a desire to not be killed in the coming battle. In verse 9 through 11, she says unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, 
and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. And when ye came out of Egypt, and what ye did to the two king, kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sion and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And when, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. And this is a key key part right here. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. And so what I think you have going on here is actually a recognition, her recognition of Yahweh as the one true God. He is the God of heaven. Even though uh, she's a foreigner, she recognizes the one true God. She recognizes that he is giving this land to Israel. And this demonstrates a heart of faith in God and a desire to be part of her people and turn her back on her idolatrous life, her paganism, and her people. And through this confession, she demonstrates that even though as a foreigner, she is one who we would put in that, those left two words, that category, she actually finds herself, we would say, in that final category. So I'm going to put some people up here. As we go through this, we've already discussed the wives uh, mentioned in Ezra 9 through 10. We're going to put the, in those first two categories. Technically, the term is that second one. But for Ahab, we're going to put her in that final one. And her disposition, I think, towards God is highlighted even more when you consider and, and contrast that to the reaction of the Gibeonites in Joshua 10. They displayed the same kind of fear that Rahab Rahab had due to the uh, to do what they had heard about the Lord doing to Egypt, but there's no recognition of Yahweh being the true, the one true God of heaven. And Rahab, she was also up front with the spies, whereas the Gibeonites they were deceptive in trying to save their own skins. So uh, some may disagree with me on this, but I'm actually gonna I'm gonna put them over there in that far left category. Then our second one. The book of Ruth, and this is where, uh, kids, if you're following along in your uh, uh, kids' corner sheet, this is uh, really where you're focusing on. The book makes very clear that Ruth is a foreigner. She is of what country? What nation? Moab. Moab, right. She is a Moabitess. In fact, as you read the book of Ruth, um, you, you see this, obviously, from chapter 1, that Naomi goes down and she, uh, Moab, uh, goes down to Moab, and that's where Ruth is from. But five times in the whole book does it say, Ruth the Moabitess. It's almost becoming awkward, and it's like, yes, we know, it's Ruth the Moabitess. But I think that's because the author is trying to make a point about the fact that this is a foreigner who is going to assimilate into God's people. And in chapter uh, 1, verse 12, I, I think that she makes just uh, one of the beautiful, most beautiful uh, confessions of faith. Actually, it's uh, verse 16, not verse 12. She says, Your people shall be my people, and thy God shall be my, my God. And she really bears the qualities of that fourth term. That, that heart attitude of the gear, one who wants to worship Yahweh. And so what happens? Boaz notices her gleaning in his fields, and knowing of her kindness to Naomi, he's recognizing that she has the status of a gear, one who has turned her back on paganism and come to Yahweh. 
And he kindly insists that she only gathers in his fields and he offers her protection. And in chapter 2, verse 10, she responds and asks why Boaz would show such kindness to her since she's a foreigner. And she actually uses, she doesn't use the word gear, she doesn't use the word to sob, she actually uses that second word, which would put her at really a disadvantage, that, that would put her in a negative light. She's not claiming the benefits of the law for the gear. But Boaz, being a righteous man, he recognizes her heart attitude and what she has done for Naomi. He recognizes his responsibility to the gear and insists that she keeps on coming back to his field. He's trying to follow the, obey, the, the Mosaic law that says that they were to not reap the corners of their field. And what does he tell his men? You remember what he tells his men about when they're gathering? He says, I want you to purposely drop crops for her to gather. So when she goes back to Naomi, Naomi's like, how in the world did you get so much? And she's like, I went to this guy, Boaz. And Naomi's like, praise the Lord. He's a relative of ours. You keep going back to there. And you know the rest of the story. So here's a positive incident where, uh, just like the last one with Rahab, where Israel had a ministry and was a blessing to the foreigner. Next, we're going to go to 2 Samuel 11. And we're not going to actually read that. Uh, but I think you, some of you may know where I'm going with this one, and this is actually David's failure. David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah is probably one of the things that he is uh, most well known for. And the sin is egregious on many levels, but let's focus on Uriah. Does anybody know what ethnicity Uriah is off the top of your head? Hittite, that's right. They were part of the Canaanites at large before Israel came in. And so, even though Uriah is a non-Israelite, and he is, uh, uh, you know, by reading the account, he is a non-Israelite, you can see that he is loyal to Yahweh. You can see that he is loyal to Israel. He's one of David's mighty men. He's loyal to the king. But nine times his ethnicity is mentioned. Why? He's like, okay, we know. It's Uriah the Hittite. It's because I I think it's because the author is trying to highlight and underscore the, the uh, egregiousness of David's sin is only exacerbated even more by the fact that not only did he murder somebody, did it, not only did he steal somebody's wife, but he did it to someone that the law had protected. This Uriah was someone who loved the Lord, even though he was not a biological Israelite, he was someone who had made Yahweh his God, and the law had, there were laws to protect the gear, and David threw those out the window. And so when Psalm 146, verse 9 says that God protects the ger, and he will avenge them, by inference, he's going to avenge them, what happens to David as a result of it? Well, God, the the rest of David's life, the rest of the narrative shows a lot of problems for David. And I think, yes, it's God's judgment for the sins in general of of his, his sin of adultery and his sin of murder, but it was also because it was the sin against someone that God said he would protect and that David was supposed to have a responsibility towards. And so I'm going to put Uriah in there, but he's got a little asterisk there, not due to his own fault, but because it was actually a failure. It's a, of someone else not showing kindness and being a blessing to the gear. Let's go to uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but briefly, this is the story of Naaman, a pagan general who is not technically a sojourner like the Gare, 
but he has a change of heart after being healed of leprosy, even though he's a pagan. And we see this heart change in verse 15. He says, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. He's saying basically the same thing that Rahab did. There's no God but Israel's God. No God in heaven but your God. Verse 17, he also demonstrates a heart attitude of a change uh, towards worshiping Yahweh because he commits to offering sacrifices to Yahweh alone. And in verse 18, he even expresses kind of guilt that his duties as a general uh, would kind of indirectly put him in participation with uh, paganism by having to be there with his king whenever his king goes and worships their false god. And he's like, I, I don't feel like I should do this, but I don't know what to do. And Elisha basically puts his sanctification in the Lord's hands and, and he says, the, the Lord, don't worry about it. God, God go with you. Okay. All of that is indicating a heart that I'm going to put him in quotes over here on the far uh, uh, right, not because it, um, he's you know, bad or anything, but he has that heart of a gear, even though he's not technically sojourning in the land. And our final uh, uh, one that we'll look at tonight, final one is in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41 through 43. 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43. And this is Solomon's prayer for the nations at the dedication of the temple. And something interesting happens. Solomon makes mention of the foreigner in 1 Kings 8. And starting in verse 41... He says, Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake, for they shall hear of thy name's sake, and of thy strong hand, and of thy stretched out arm, when he shall come and pray towards this house, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all the people of the earth may know thy name, to fear thee as do thy people." that they may know that this house, which I have, I have builded, is called by thy name. Now, he's making mention of the foreigner. But it's, I think it's really interesting that the word for foreigner is not the ger. It's not the tosab. It's actually the nekari, the one that would be uh, potentially morally or religiously causing harm. And Solomon is envisioning that even paganism, even those who are in paganism, will hear of God's greatness because of what Israel, uh, the, the prominence of Israel, how God has blessed them, but specifically their great God because of indwelling the temple and, and all the blessings that God is bringing on them. Solomon is seeing saying, God, they're going to hear of your great name, and I pray that when they do come, because they will hear, that's what he says in verse 2, they will hear of thy great name and, and the great mighty acts and things that you do. When they do come, God, would you accept and hear their prayer? And so those foreigners will be drawn to Israel and pray to God as a recognition of Yahweh as who he is. And so even though he's using that second word there that has been largely negative, Solomon is thinking in his mind, that even those people will be drawn to God. 
And he's asking God that he would hear and answer the prayers of those pagan foreigners who are coming because of God's greatness. And really, Isaiah 56, 7 and Zephaniah 8, they both talk about and look forward to a time in the millennial kingdom when God's house will be called a house of prayer. And that's what Jesus quotes in the New Testament when he accuses uh, the money changers in the temple and drives them out. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a house of thieves. So looking at these biblical terms for the stranger, I think, in my mind, is actually very fascinating and helps clarify Israel's role and responsibility that they were to have towards foreigners. On the one hand, they were supposed to be on guard against foreigners who could lead them into idolatry. Hence, they were to destroy all the Canaanites and make no covenant with them. Why? To protect their holiness. But they could and should love and care for those Gentiles who lived among them, which was really not, it may not have been spiritual in nature like you know, modern-day evangelism, but these would be the foreigners who did not pose the same kind of threat that uh, the other two did. But these were people who had been circumcised and converted to Yahwehism, and Israel was to be a blessing to these people. But sadly... By the end of the Old Testament era and coming into the New Testament era, it had developed to such a point that the Jews had taken separation from the foreigners to such a point that they looked uh, with, uh, upon Gentiles and Samaritans with contempt. They looked down on them. And really, it was, they were basically racist in a lot of ways. And so that's why at the beginning of the church in Acts, you've got this you know, unashamed inclusion of the Gentiles and with no old covenant strings attached, that was shocking to the Jews. And, you know, because they were used to, okay, well, if the Gair is allowed to come in through circumcision, surely the, these new Gentile believers should be circumcised as well. But that's not what the apostles, that's not what Peter and Paul and, and James, that, that wasn't their conclusion. They said, no, that's not necessary. We're under, new, we're under a new law. And as Pastor Joel preached on last week from Ephesians chapter 2, 12 through 20, we, you and I as believers, were strangers or sojourners, aliens that have been made one in Christ's body. Even though we are not nationally Israelites, we're all one. We're fellow heirs with them. So so, some concluding thoughts for you as, as we think about Israel's response to the foreigner, the stranger, and how they were to interact with them and how they were to live themselves. Number one conclusion for us is some takeaways for our own hearts is we need to be ready to live as strangers here on this earth because this is not our home. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts that war against your soul, having your conversation honest or your lifestyle among the Gentiles. So he's addressing these people, and for the Jewish believers, in a lot of ways, that probably would have been chafed against them a little bit, and a little, bit, and a little shocking, because they're used to being the insiders, so to speak. He's like, what do you mean? I'm not a pilgrim. I'm not a stranger. They're like, I'm an Israelite. You're like, we're, we're the good guys. We're the insiders. We're the privileged. We're the elite. But Paul, uh, Peter here is saying, no, that, that, that nationality thing, that it's not that it's completely unimportant, but that's not what really matters. This life here and now is not what we're to be focusing on. Before you thought that you were the insiders and everybody else was a pilgrim and a stranger, 
But really, when you think about it, we are, actually, we are actually the ones that are pilgrims and strangers in this world because our home is not here. Our home is in heaven. And so often we think of ourselves as, oh, yeah, we've, we, you know, we're, we're the insiders. We're here at this church, and we, we got our, our community here, and this is our home. And, uh, and it's, it's not that there's anything wrong with making roots, uh, uh, digging down roots and, and making roots here where you're at. But we need to keep in mind that this world is not our home and that we are actually the ones who are strangers and pilgrims in this world. And so we should live like it. And this uh, leads right into the next one. Be on guard against worldly influences. Just like Israel was not to be buddy-buddy with those, the foreigners that fell into the category of those first two words because they posed uh, moral and religious spiritual harm to them, they were strangers, so we ought to seriously consider our interaction with the, Lord, the world, the friends we make, the entertainment that we have, the, the places that go, the things we see and do. Are we making compromises that we should not? Romans 12 talks about uh, not being conformed to this world, but presenting our bodies a living sacrifice to God. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. How would this happen? Well, the same way that it happened for the Israelites, how they were sucked into idolatry. They started to make compromises. They made covenants. They allowed people to exist in their community. They didn't drive out the Canaanites. They intermarried with them. And compromise after compromise, it led them to spiritual degradation to the point that they were nothing like the holy nation that God meant for them to be. And the same thing can happen to us. You may be surprised by how uh, far maybe you or, or have gone or, or gone one way or the other, or you've seen somebody who used to be so spiritual and such a, a spiritual leader, and then they had like, it seemed like they had a 180-degree swing to the other side. Well, what happened? Compromise after compromise. They weren't on guard against the worldly influences. And it, sometimes you, could, you may not think, well, that's not a big deal. It may not be, but it might be. And so we need to make, uh, ask ourselves the questions about our standards and the things that we're allowing into our hearts, our minds, our brains, and the entertainment that we're viewing. It, whether we realize it or not, it's subtly influencing us. Even Jude 22, 23, when it talks about witnessing, having compassion, and of some have compassion, making a difference, and of others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Beware that you're not uh, captivated or tainted by what you're trying to save them out of. And then finally, that leads into our final point, compassionately share Christ and be a blessing. Like the Israelites were to be a blessing to the nations, particularly to those among them, that had uh, turned to Yahweh as the one true God, we should be a blessing to others. And, and we do have the active command to go share the gospel to the nations. We shouldn't be like the Pharisees who uh, looked down on those who weren't spiritually elite like them, they were. We shouldn't look down on those who are in such sin that we deem so uh, disgraceful uh, and distasteful and are like, oh man, those heathen, those sinners, you know, they just, you know, God's going to judge them. Yeah, we shouldn't act like that's such a yay happy thing because that judgment of God is serious. We, we ought to earnestly desire their repentance. My, my dad sent uh, me an email about one uh, prominent leader uh, who's uh, you know, known for doing a lot of not great things. 
And he said, he said to me, praying that this person repents before his, uh, before his time comes. That's what our heart should be, is that somehow, some way that God would get a hold of them. And so would we, uh, we must compassionately share Christ and seek to be a blessing to those around us while we can, while there's still time for them and for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, please help